Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this podcast. This year we're doing a series of discussions on the future of the internet and society and some of the big questions around it. And every discussion covers a different topic with different experts, and I'm excited to share this discussion with you. Today, we're here to talk about governance issues around giving people a voice and uh, content and, the, and, and finding the right balance between uh, free expression and speech and uh, making sure that safety uh, is, is respected and harmful content can, can be taken down from the internet as well. And today, I'm here um, with, with two folks, uh, Jenny uh, Martinez, the, the dean of Stanford Law, uh, who is a scholar in international studies uh, and human rights, uh, and Noah Feldman, uh, who's a professor of, at, at Harvard Law, uh, who has studied uh, constitutional law and a focus on, on free speech and expression. And, um, you know, to, to give a, a background on, on how we're approaching this, uh, you know, I believe that if we were writing the rules for the internet today from scratch. I don't think that we would want private companies to be making so many fundamental decisions uh, by themselves about important things like what speech is acceptable, um, how to prevent election interference, what the privacy uh, rule should be. So one of the things that I've been outspoken on is talking about the need for, uh, for more uh, regulation of these areas, in, in some cases by governments and through democratic process, and uh, in other cases uh, through independent industry process. Um, and, you know, at Facebook, we're, we're not waiting until uh, that process goes through. We're trying to take some steps independently uh, to, to establish uh, things like this independent oversight board uh, that will, for, for content, which will give people in our community the ability to appeal content decisions that we make. Uh, so that way, if, if, um, if Facebook takes a piece of content down and you, know, you think that it shouldn't be taken down, then you'll be able to appeal it. And, um, and, and, if, and if you still disagree with, with our treatment on appeal, you'll be able to appeal it to this external independent board, and its decision will be binding. Uh, so if, um, if, if it says that something needs to stay up, um, it'll stay up no matter what uh, I think, or, or our teams at Facebook think. And you know, so this is an, an experiment in independent governance around expression, um, which we've been working on for, uh, for more than a year now. I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of different academics uh, around this. Noah uh, was, was originally involved in helping to, to think through what, uh, what this idea would be. And we've, we've taken uh, the last year or so uh, to go run trials around the world, right? So we've had almost 30 trials in a lot of different cities, um, experimenting with different constructs around how this board would work. Uh, and we've just published today uh, a, a report of all the feedback that we've gotten, which outlines some of what we learned from these trials, but also uh, highlights all the tensions between uh, different ways that we could design this. So now the next step going forward is going to be to try to lock down some of these decisions, make some of these decisions over the next few months, and, uh, and, and launch uh, this independent oversight board by the end of the year. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot that this board could eventually do. Uh, we, the goal is going to be to start narrowly, uh, and then eventually, over time, expand its scope and, and hopefully include more folks in the industry as well. Uh, but this is, 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 a, is a big experiment that we hope uh, can, can pioneer a new model for, for governance of, of speech uh, on, on the internet. So, um, so thank you for joining me to, to go through this. Um, I, I think it might be useful to start off um, by discussing the historical context that, that we exist in now, because clearly you know, the internet is not the first time that societies have struggled with these questions around expression and safety and privacy and decency and, and, and the different values that we, that we hold. Um, so I, I'd be curious just in, in the the different scholarship that you've each done, um, how would you characterize the, the kind of the moment that we're in and the historical tradition um, in, in which this uh, kind of struggle and, and, and approach to governance uh, fits? Well, I think one interesting thing, Mark, uh, that you sort of teed up as you began the conversation was that people have these concerns because companies like Facebook have really very global power and power that seems a lot like what governments have in terms of the ability to have an impact on people's lives or to control speech. 
and with more than two billion users, it's bigger than any country on the planet. And so the sort of concentration of power and then also in a private, in a company that isn't accountable in the way that a democratically elected government would be is something that gives people pause and makes them think, well, how should we manage this, especially on an international scale? I think one thing that's interesting historically is that the distinction between government power and private power that we have today is very sharp, where there's a clear line between what the government is and what governments do and what we think of as private forms of power. But if you look back even just a couple hundred years in human history to the 1600s, the 1700s, there were previous periods where very large companies played a role that also straddled the divide between public and private power. So the British East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, those companies in the 1600s and 1700s had very wide reach geographically. They also engaged in powers that today we would think of as government powers. So they coined money, they raised armies, they entered into treaties, things that today we would think is exclusively the province of states. At earlier points in history, just that line between what states did and what other actors did on the international stage was more fluid. And so I don't think the period today is exactly the same. There's huge differences in the world and the economy and the role of, of the companies, but it does show that the categories of what governments do and what private companies do are not so neat and clean as they might have seemed for part of the 20th century. And so it's a governance challenge globally that will, I think, change the way that international law itself works over time. Maybe I can pick up the historical story where, where Jenny left it off. Um, so, you know, you get into the 1700s and you get these colonies all over North America. And they're, some of them are actually sort of like companies. You know, they get a charter from the crown. They're in business. Some of them make it, some of them don't. Um, but eventually they emerge as quasi-independent entities. And then they become states with independence. And then they write these state constitutions. And that's really the first time that people start saying, maybe free speech needs to be protected by a formal rule. Until then, you know, there were traditions of freedom of expression in some places, but most governments before then just thought, well, if I don't like what this speech is, I'll shut it down. You could either shut it down before someone talks by having a censor who has to review everything before it could be published, or you can punish people after they've spoken if you don't like what they've done. And then over the next couple of hundred years, this constitutional practice of defending free speech with a rule slowly developed, mostly in America and mostly without being applied in practice. And it wasn't really till the beginning of the 20th century that even the U.S. Supreme Court started saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, government, you passed that law, that violates the freedom of speech. And then that went global really after World War II. After World War II is where you suddenly get companies, you suddenly get countries rather, realizing that instead of acting as censors, they're much better off having a constitutional court that's quasi-independent, you know, it's part of the government, Mm -hmm. but it's an independent decision maker within the government, and then giving that body the authority to decide about speech issues. So that kind of spinning off separation of powers approach mm -hmm. is really a product of the last 75 years. Yeah, very interesting. So, you know, when I first started thinking about this idea of how to get more of the community involved, how to build an independent process for um, to get involved with more of our content policies, because there's a, a strong feeling that, you know, this is not something that, that a private company should be just defining by, by itself. And there's um, the, the questions about what people can, can say in different contexts is it, it, it affects people broadly and, and is not uh, something that I think we would want uh, any one set of people deciding in, um, by themselves. The, the, the original uh, idea that, that, I, that I was thinking about was... Um, more to involve independent folks in um, in setting the policies directly. And in some of our early conversations, yeah. um, you, you had basically uh, proposed and, and, and convinced me that it would make more sense to start with more of an appeals-type analog um, rather than a legislative-type analog or policy-setting analog. And I'm, I'm curious to, to hear you, you talk through in a bit more detail uh, about why you think that that's the right approach to go to protect speech um, and, and to engage in the kind of, of independence that, the, um, that we want to provide for, for this community? There are really two reasons. One is modesty. You know, in the end, 
um, Facebook is a company, not a country. And so it doesn't have a democratic base of citizens who could vote for elected representatives in some obvious way and then pass laws that would then be enforced by, you know, by a government apparatus. And so it's hard, therefore, to say, let's draft out some you know, new rules for governance using yeah. this. But the second reason has to do with the fact that actually, even among democracies, no democracy thinks that it should use its elected representatives to make the ultimate decisions on the freedom of speech. You know, no government says, let's not have a constitutional court nowadays. Let's just vote on what speech should be allowed or what shouldn't be allowed. Because the experience that most countries have had with that is a bad one. You know, the public can very happily shut down speech when it seems useful. The majority will try to silence the minority. It's just sort of, it's good common sense. And so it seemed to me that logically, similarly, Facebook, if it's interested in protecting voice, which seems to me like you have to be. Since yes, yeah, that's what we stand for, is, that's the is, whole, is giving people a voice. Yeah, no, no voice, no, no Facebook. Right? People have to be able to express themselves. Would similarly want to take advantage of an approach that says, let's have an independent decision-making body that will stand for the principle of voice. And when there are circumstances where we have to balance voice against people's safety or against people's equality, that body can make those judgments and can do it in an open way, transparently explaining the trade-offs and ultimately defensively to the world. And that's where the public legitimacy comes in. If a court explains why it's doing what it's doing, if it says this is why we're doing it this way, if it says here's the balance, then people can say we agree or we don't agree. And people can engage in their own judgment. Yeah. Well, so you, you raised this question around legitimacy, which I think is one of the core um, questions in designing this, this kind of a system. And you know, for those who, who have questions rightfully about, you know, why should a private company be making all of these decisions? Um, that then begs the question of any system that you set up uh, that's independent, how does it derive its legitimacy? And in a democratic process, um, that's through voting. But here, like you say, I mean, this is, it, it, it wouldn't make sense for a number of reasons to, to kind of have the community um, vote on, on, on people who, who are then, uh, you know, deciding the speech policies. Um, but I'm, I'm curious how you think about how this will, can derive its, its legitimacy um, as an independent um, a, a appeals process and where the balance is between uh, something that, that industry or we should be doing and, and standing up ourselves versus where uh, more democratic government regulation might be um, better and, and more effective in this space. I think legitimacy can come from a couple of different sources. One is the process itself and whether it's viewed as fair. Is it transparent? Are people viewed as being subject to improper motivation or influence or are they seen as independent and in trying to fairly apply the rules that are there? I think there's also some legitimacy that comes though from the perception that the values that are being applied are ones that are somehow accepted by broader society. And one thing I think that you've talked about in some of the materials that I think is relevant to that is the question of whether you try to relate back your values to some external standard that's been created through a public process like international human rights law, where you have countries coming together and saying expression and then is, is valued and protected, and then naming some of the other values that society might have that you would, in those hard cases, be balancing, whether it's public safety or equality. And I do think you can gain some legitimacy by trying to tie things back to those public values in something like international human rights law, which has been accepted by most of the countries in the world and may not give all the answers to hard questions, but it gives you at least some sense of what are the values that you would be weighing. And that's in a way more legitimate than just saying these are our values. Well, these are actually values that have been adopted and endorsed by, um, by a more public process around the world. I mean, I say I think that makes a lot of sense. And I know that, you know, within Facebook, you guys are working towards coming up with a distinctive set of values. And the, in my conversations with people in Facebook, those always seem to be informed very much by international law, um, very much reflecting those ideals and those standards. They have to be tweaked a little bit because, again, Facebook company, not a country. And most of those international human rights standards are designed for a country. So they might not be exactly the same. But I think they're very much informed by, and I think that is in people's minds. I also think legitimacy will come from seeing in action 
an independent body do some things that you guys don't want them to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. the legitimacy ultimately will seem real, will be real, when people see decisions that are different from what Facebook would otherwise have decided to do. And I think, you know, we live in a very sophisticated world today where you couldn't create legitimacy for something unless it was genuinely independent. And so people will want to see the genuine independence in action. Yeah, I mean, that's my expectation, is that we can say that this is an independent process. Um, we can have a consultative approach to helping design it and figure out who should be on it. Um, but the trust in the institution will need to be built up over time. And uh, I would imagine that the first time where you know, our, our content review team at Facebook makes a decision, um, and, and I agree with that decision, but then this board says, no, uh, it's going the other way, and, and we listen, and, 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 that's, and then you know, our systems are hardwired that what it decides actually gets um, reflected in the systems, and then we have to figure out how the policies need to evolve to fit that. Um, I, I kind of imagine that we'll go through a, a number of those and that that will increase trust in this as an institution, um, even if that creates other questions around um, the, the balance and, and, and kind of tension between it and, and, and our own operations. But um, I think that this is going to be a very interesting one to, to see um, how, how it evolves. Um, so, Jenny, you'd mentioned the, some of the different kind of theories or frameworks for thinking about expression and the international um, notion versus um, the, the American sense with, with the First Amendment um, that is kind of much stronger on protecting speech at the, at the, um, rather than balancing it against other values. And I'm curious how you think um, the standards on the internet, um, I, I guess for our services, but broadly, um, the values uh, kind of fit within the, the different frameworks that we've seen, you know, both the American one, the European one, and others around the world as well. I think even in the U.S., uh, I think the court has recognized that the value of expression has to be weighed sometimes against other values in society. So, you know, famously, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. There are limits on free expression, even in the United States, as the court has looked at what do you need to have a society function. But definitely the U.S., if you were to line up countries in the world, we're on the end of protecting more speech. And honestly, that's where I sort of come from. And I think you can't shake your your own legal background. And as an American constitutional lawyer, I tend always towards freedom of expression. But when you look at, um, for example, the European approach, I think each part of the world has been shaped by its own history. And so when you see countries like Germany or France having more restrictions on hate speech or on Holocaust denial, I think it's really rooted in their particular social and legal history where the laws that they created about freedom of expression in the late 1940s and 50s really reacted to the experience that they had recently undergone in World War II and the ways in which they saw that extreme hate speech could lead to violence on a mass scale. And so I think one of the challenges for an enterprise like this is how to balance the legitimate differences among countries in terms of their own history and culture and how they want to balance what are really hard choices at the edge, how to accommodate the different approaches of various parts of the world while also trying to set some kind of standard of protection that you want to apply across the board. And I think that's a real challenge. Mark, how have you thought about the, the international dimension of this from your own perspective? I mean, obviously you're an American, so you mm -hmm. also have the free expression yes. yeah. you know, sentiment that we all are, are raised with, but you're running a global company. So what, how, do, how have you, you know, traditionally found yourself thinking about that challenge? Well, so Facebook stands for giving people a voice. Right? I mean, that, that's such a fundamental part of what we do. And there are, there are all these obstacles to giving people as much voice as... Um, as you would want. And you know, some of them are, are these legal or policy-oriented ones that, um, that we're talking about now. A lot of them are just technical, right? It's a, there are lots of people who don't have access to the internet and don't have access to the tools or don't have as access to, to as high fidelity of tools to give people a voice. So those are less controversial to, to try to break down those, those boundaries. But a lot of what, um, what I see us doing is basically trying to um, move in the direction of giving more people a voice. Um, when, when we talk about connecting people, 
um, in the, the voice and being able to choose who you connect with, who you associate with, um, what you say to different people is fundamental in, in our ability to, um, to connect as, as people. Um, when we talk about giving small businesses access to the same opportunities that traditionally the big guys have had, whether it gets to you know, finding customers or getting their, the word out about what they're doing, um, that comes down to voice too. Right? So I think that voice is incredibly um, empowering and, and is, is in, in a lot of ways the, the primary value that, um, in principle that, that we care about. And one of the things that I think we've struggled with is that there are different there are different principles and values though, and you know it's I think often people don't acknowledge the trade offs between different things, but um, but there are also trade offs between you know expression on the one hand and safety or privacy, right? You you, you should not have the ability to go um, reveal um, people's private information um, that that they didn't want to get revealed. You should not um, have the ability to go bully people or um, use your voice to go organize. And incite violence, right? And th- those are those are things that I-, I think we would all agree are are bad. Um, and then I think that these different traditions, whether it's the the European one or or the American one, have have somewhat different ways of balancing them. But I do think you have to acknowledge that there are different values at play. So even if our goal is to try to maximize voice, um, there are going to be these. Um, these other values that we really hold dear and feel a deep responsibility to to manage uh, well for the community. So, I mean, one of the, the interesting challenges in setting up this board is I I, I wouldn't want to set it up so that um, I, I I would worry that I mean, one of the issues with with expression overall is people are generally for expression in the abstract, but then in, in many individual cases where something's controversial, the people lobbying to take down a piece of content end up being a lot louder um, than the people who in the abstract are, are for um, having it um, maintaining the principle of expression. So the question is, how do you design a system um, that can protect that more abstract but also very fundamental notion of, of giving people a voice while also acknowledging that there are these other values that um, that are dear and that are incredibly important to our responsibility to our community and that we need to um, to uphold as well. So that, that's kind of what I was hoping to to get at in the discussion between the the kind of the European approach or the international um, human rights frame on this um, compared to the American approach, which. Granted, the American approach doesn't say that it, it doesn't say that everything is allowed, but it certainly um, gives much more deference to voice and, and, and expression. And um, I'm, I'm curious how you think that we should balance that on the internet and designing a system that fits with the values that I'm um, that, that I'm that I'm discussing here. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's I wanted to also ask Jenny about is we're talking about a body that will be made up of people from all over the world. Facebook's got users all over the world. And so you have to have members of an oversight board from all over the world. And then they'll have a set of values Mm -hmm. that are their common values that they'll commit themselves to upholding. And I'm wondering, Jenny, I mean, I remember after we clerked together at the Supreme Court, you went off and clerked the International Court of Justice. You know, you've, 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 and then you've studied international law. How have bodies composed of people from different places historically done? Have they done a good job when they're supposed to converge on some values? I think it's a really interesting question, and there have been a bunch of international courts in the 20th and 21st century, and some have done a better job than others in terms of how much convergence you have between the different judges. But they do come from so many different legal systems and cultures, and sort of getting cohesion in a set of people from different countries can be really tough, both even just in the sort of way they approach a legal problem and analyzing it you can find that judges from different places have very different approaches. And so I and think that... And these oversight board members won't even all be lawyers. They won't, so they e- won't even think, have yeah. all in common that, oh, they all went to law school somewhere. Yeah, I think it'll be a huge challenge in trying to build some kind of cohesion and a sense of common mission. Now, one thing that international courts do is try to come up with ways of accommodating local difference with a kind of floor of international standards. So Mm. in the European Court of Human Rights, for example, they have a a sort of idea called the margin of appreciation, which is they set a floor. Everyone, all the countries in Europe have to have a minimum protection for rights that is the floor. But then some countries get a margin of appreciation of doing slightly more, slightly less based on their local culture and needs. And so that's something that the judges came up with there 
to try to accommodate those differences. But one of the things that, Mark, in your question, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this raised for me was, you know, we talked about the U.S., which has a very pro-free speech approach, and Europe, which does a little more balancing on things like hate speech or privacy. But there are many countries in the world that swing much more towards the authoritarian end of things in terms of suppression of speech and political speech. One of the things international human rights law tries to do is, is to set a floor and to push back against those countries that want to impose greater restrictions on speech. You have a policy, and I understand that the review board will follow the policy of complying with local law. But I wonder, in terms of the value of, um, you know, the tilt that you've described towards voices wanting to suppress speech, how do you balance that accommodation and respect for local law with the desire to protect free expression when you've got a country that's engaged in censorship that is problematic? Yeah, I mean, this is a a, a set of controversial decisions that, I, that we spend a lot of time thinking about. But it goes back to this principle of trying to give people the most voice that we can. And this idea that, um, that giving people a voice is something that you can expand on um, if you give people better technical tools, if you give people the ability to um, get their ideas and experience out, you're expanding people's voice. If you um, push on the boundaries of what people are allowed to communicate, you're expanding people's voice. Um, in some of these cases, there, there are certainly laws in countries that that I disagree with, right? And that, that I wish weren't there, and that um, I, I wish we didn't have to follow. But if the but if the trade-off is having Facebook not available, um, so that you know, 99.9% of people in the country who are using these tools to express things on a day-to-day basis that are important to them, um, important to their social lives, um, in, in a lot of cases for all, uh, the tens of millions of people who run small businesses, important to their well-being um, and the economy locally. To say that we're going to deprive those people of a tool um, because uh, 0.01% of, of the people in a country um, are, are trying to express something that a local law forbids um, doesn't feel like the right calculation, even though um, e- even though I understand it. I mean, it's it, it, like it's e- even if we disagree with, with the law. Um, so we've made the decision that um, in, in most of these cases, we're going to follow um, local laws on speech. Um, that doesn't mean that um, th- there are there are lines here that I think are are, are incredibly important. You do have this question all the time where countries are trying to impose their their local standards on people outside of their country. Um, and that's obviously not going to be something that we go for. Um, at the same time, um, we're very sensitive on the privacy side not to store um, people's data um, in countries that we think aren't going to respect people's human rights. Um, and that's a little bit different from, from a question around censorship. But the, the notion there is, okay, if people can't express every single thing that they would want because a local uh, repressive government says that you can't, then that's limiting your voice and that's a, that's a problem. But putting data in a place could really cause real-world harm, where the government goes after people and imprisons them or, or hurts them or their family. So um, that's a clear line that, um, that, that we don't cross um, and that I would encourage more folks in the industry to to, to kind of uphold as, as, a, as, as a red line as well. If I could say Let something me, I was, about, yeah, sorry, I was just going to ask one follow-up question, which is that all makes sense in terms of preserving the access of people to the service yeah. when otherwise the country might block you entirely. But with this new content review board, even if you say you're going to comply with local law at the end, why not let the board say, okay, this decision, you're going to do it because you comply with local law, but in a kind of advisory opinion kind of way, we think that this particular censorship decision violates Facebook's values or international human rights standards. We understand the company is going to go along with the local law, but we think it's an un, sort of inappropriate suppression of speech. I would be supportive of that. Yeah, and one of the, one of the fundamental properties of the, the board is going to be um, reason giving, right? So it's not just that it's a it's a group of people. They go off, they make a decision, and then the decision is is um, is, is done. And it's opaque. A, a lot of the point is to build up a, um, a like almost a, a case law a, a analog um, and precedence, and 
rationale for why certain decisions are being made um, that hopefully over time will not just influence our uh, systems here and the, the different services that we run, uh, but the way that people think about this across the industry. Um, we'll start narrow, right, in terms of the scope, but I mean, over time, if this if this works well, um, you could see this expanding to be something where, um, where other companies um, directly want to use a board like this to help uh, adjudicate and deal with appeals on on some of the most complex issues that they face as well. Um, and hopefully the, the work that gets done here is, is serious thinking that can also over time influence the way that, um, that other scholars and, and folks who are putting laws and regulations in place um, in different countries around the world think about the way that expression should work on the internet as well. And if I could say something optimistic about this, I mean, in, in that scenario that Mark describes where, where the, the board does a good job and it issues opinions and people listen to them, I think courts in a lot of countries will take that seriously. You know, it will, the same way that courts, you know, sometimes listen to the opinions of courts from different countries, doesn't mean that they force to follow them, obviously. It just means they think, oh, that's interesting. That's a reasonable way of, of going about the particular problem. And I think, especially in countries where the legal pressure they're putting on Facebook is sort of at the boundary of what their own law actually requires, you know, sometimes countries say, oh, you have to take this down, it's illegal, and then Facebook can push back and say, well, it's not really illegal under your laws, you just really don't like it in this case. The board, I think, could really help in that effort by saying, well, you know, we've done the balancing, we've made a thoughtful judgment, that should influence you. Um, again, that's an optimistic picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting question about how that set of things plays out around the, the, the handling of, of kind of incoming requests from, from different governments. It's certainly not why we're setting it up, but, it's, but I think it, it'll, it'll have an interesting effect over time. And, yeah, and especially when, when you're starting out, to the extent that you have a commitment to follow the law of local countries, you know, if your legal department says, well... This violates the law of the local country. I don't think it makes sense to send it to the board and put the board in the position of having to say, well, if we were deciding this, we would, you know, mm-hmm. but you could do that. You could have sort of the effectively advice uh, from the body under those circumstances yeah. if you chose to. Yeah. yeah. But going back to this question about how to manage a, a global platform with the, yeah. with the needs of what are very different cultures in different places. I mean, this has been one of the points that the report uh, that we published highlights in terms of different tensions and design decisions. Um, I, I'm curious how you would think about this in terms of um, how to have a, a group that has sufficient cohesion that it can um, th- that it that it can help make these decisions for for the platform around the world. Where where deference needs to be given to um, to local cultures and 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 how you would just think about that overall. I mean, for me, because Facebook is committed to universal values and is also committed to having community standards on its platform that are the same everywhere, what you want is the international participants to give you local understanding, to give you cultural knowledge. So if you're trying to figure out if a particular post is ironic and funny or is in fact you know, intended to do harm to people, you need somebody with the sophistication to know what people think in the culture. And you can rely on experts for that up to a certain point, but there's no substitute for having someone on the board who actually yeah. can help explain those things. And I think that's hugely valuable. But then the body also has to be aware that there are going to be some things, like nudity policy is a great example, where you know, there's a huge range of different cultural choices all over the world on nudity. You know, In some cultures, it's normal to wear very few clothes, and in some cultures, it's normal to wear a whole lot of clothes. And I think if you're going to have, as Facebook does have, a single standard on nudity, mm-hmm. then the, the body has to be made up, the, the oversight board has to be made up of people who say, we get it. We get that there's cultural difference, but we also get that this is a platform that operates globally. Yep. And we've had to converge on something that more or less works, acknowledging that it's not a perfect fit for the south of France and it's not a perfect fit for Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. I think one challenge in respect to that is figuring out sort of what's the optimal number of people to cover the geographic diversity of the world while still having cohesion among the people who are on the board so that there's consistency and approach and a kind of understanding. And I think that to get that, you you can't realistically represent all the countries or even sort of significant portions of it in a manageable size group. So you have to have some way of picking people who are going to be aware of their own cultural blind spots and then also have the ability to 
you know, talk to experts, talk to people from a particular geographic space to get more information. Um, but I think that that's part of what the struggle yeah. you'll have will be in trying to find that right number of people. Um, and in our conversations, we've been hovering around 40 mm-hmm. um, with the goal of trying to maximize participation from different parts in the world while also having a body that can still function. You know, probably the 40 aren't going to sit on any one decision together. They'll have to sit in, in sub-panels. Yeah. But that seems like ballpark to me, roughly the right, the right sort of number. Yeah, and that's something that the report discusses, is basically the, the range. You know, I, I think that there's, there's the discussion about should it be closer to 20, should it be closer to 100. Yeah. There are different pros and cons around cohesion yep. of the group, um, ability to handle a workload. I mean, they're going to be... Yes, a, if the workload gets too big. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, it's already going to function in this way where... And if you're in, in the community and you want to appeal a decision, your first appeal goes to a set of appealers, uh, uh, people who can, who can look at those appeals in, um, inside Facebook. But then afterwards, if you, if you still aren't satisfied with that, you'll be able to appeal to this independent board, but it will have to choose which cases um, it takes. And there, there's a question of do we want it to handle 100 cases a year or 50 or or a thousand, or and, and that's that's an important piece of this as well. Um, the other question that, that I think is a really big deal around how we set this up um, in terms of appointment is not just about the size, but but how do we do the appointment? It gets this question around legitimacy and independence, which is, um, of course, we achieve some independence even if if Facebook picks the people, um, but then they're independent and you know they're not they're not paid by us and. Um, and, and the decisions are binding, but we can't, you know, we don't have the ability to remove them. Um, that, that achieves a, a level of independence, but I don't know if that would be um, as, as much as we would want to have to really maximize the legitimacy and independence of, of, of the board. So I'm, I'm curious how, how you think about that and, and the, the trade-off space there um, between how this can go. Because, I mean, it's I think people agree that, that it would be better if, if we weren't appointing these people all ourselves, but it's been hard to come to consensus on any other approach that, um, that would make a whole lot of more sense. I mean, clearly, I think people don't want governments to be appointing the people, for example, in, in, in a lot of countries. Um, but, but I'm curious, what, where, what balance, where, would, where do you think we should end up on this? Well, one mechanism you sometimes see in international bodies is to have one step in between the sort of selection, so selecting the selectors. So for the International Court of Justice, for example, states appoint representatives to the Permanent Court of Arbitration, which is a different body, and then those people then suggest candidates for the ICJ in addition to other things they do. And then in in that case, it's the UN General Assembly and Security Council that make the final decision. But there's a step between the interested parties, that is the states, and then the actual people who are chosen. So one thing, one possibility is sort of selecting people who then go on and select the actual members of the board. So there's a little bit of remove. I really struggled with this, you know, in in all of our conversations. I mean, I like Jenny's idea and I like the idea of some intervening entity, but I think that from a public perspective, people will say, wait, you pick the people who pick the people. So how did you choose that first set of people? You know, I think we get very quickly into a kind of regress problem. And so maybe there's a, a hybrid solution, you know, where we could choose some of the people and then those people could participate alongside Facebook and external input on choosing the next set of people. It might be yeah. possible to arrange a kind of middle ground, you know, solution there without making the process so complicated. I mean, one thing about these big international entities is that they do a lot of other stuff. You know, the people who do the picking, that's not the only thing they do. Um, and that would not necessarily be the case here because we're not working against the backdrop of a big infrastructure since yeah. this is an experiment that you're doing. Yeah. I, I think somewhere in the space of what you're saying, though, of, of, of having some selection group that uh, that will arrive at through a consultative process overall. So, I mean, even if, if, if um, Facebook blesses that, that initial group, it, it won't be something that uh, we just kind of sit in a room and come up with by ourselves. And then whether that group ends up being on the board um, as well as picking the other people, um, or ends up just selecting the the board by by itself. Um, I know there are pros and cons to those, but I think something in that space is is probably what makes the most sense to me about where we'll where we'll want to end up on this. And in the end, you know, people are going to see this body as an independent decision making body when it makes independent decisions. I really believe 
that its public legitimacy will come from actually doing a good job um, rather than from the in, purely from the initial mode of selection. Yeah. I, have an, I think another big challenge that you'll have that will make or break this is how you manage the volume of potential cases and the case selection process. Because I think if people see um, either because of the volume of content that there could be to review, that you're not reviewing enough of it or the right ones, or the timing is too slow, where people think that this is content that we're really worried about now, but by the time this board gets to it, it's months down the road. The you know, the ship has already sailed, the riots have happened in the city, or whatever harm has occurred has, has happened. So I think that's a huge challenge that it will make or break this in terms of whether people view it as legitimate and actually doing something. So I wonder how you think about, um, both of you, the volume of cases and how you can possibly both resolve things expeditiously enough that the public thinks this is actually weighing in at a time when it's useful, and then hitting the right cases out of this huge number of yeah. um, content moderation decisions you're making. Yeah, no, this is a really important point. I think we envision two different tracks. So there's, um, there's one set of things that are more deliberative, precedent-setting, longer-term decisions where the importance is less about, um, okay, in this specific case, did we take the piece of content down or leave it up today? Um, but more about influencing uh, the long-term direction of the policies and the way that the platform evolves. There's another set of issues which very much are urgent. And there we need a mechanism to basically be able to refer issues that we see um, to the board and have a relatively rapid turnaround that could affect whether something um, could have an imminent impact. And that, I think, also reflects how the issues will get raised to the board. On the one hand, um, there will be an appeals process where anyone in the community will be able to get an appeal, which will first go to Facebook, and then a second appeal, they'll be able to at least raise it to the board, and then the board can consider hearing it. Um, and I imagine that there will also be a staff for the board that will be a permanent staff to help review and prioritize um, some of this as well. And at the same time, I think that there also needs to be a track where Facebook and our systems directly can say, hey, we see that this piece of content is about to go viral, um, and, and, and we are making a decision on how we're going to handle this, um, because that's our responsibility, but we also want to make sure that we think this is a, a, a very important matter, so we also want to refer this to the board um, and put it on your radar now that you might want to make a decision on this now and rule on whether our handling of this was right. And that will create... Um, additional accountability and oversight of what we do internally, which I think is, is important. But it's also a way for us to um, execute on our responsibility for managing the content as well as possible. It's, it's not that we're ever going to be out of the business of having to make these decisions ourselves internally, uh, but we just think that it's so important that these decisions get made well um, that in addition to trying to build out robust internal systems, we were also going to build out this whole independent system for oversight and accountability of the way that we're making those um, and, and that we can refer stuff to, to it ourselves in addition to the way that the community um, can appeal it. And just one point that very much builds on what Mark was saying, one huge advantage of reason giving, of explanation for the decision is that it drives you in life, if you have to give a reason for what you do, to think it through clearly and to state it clearly. And especially for high-pressure, short-run decisions, you know, we're all human. It's almost impossible to make those decisions perfectly. But if you know that there's going to be a review of that decision, yeah. you're going to have to come up with a clear yeah. reason for it. And then when the body is doing the review, it's going to give clear reasons for it. And then I think for the general public that's trying to figure out, was this the right decision, they'll have a framework for making their own judgment instead of just instinctively thinking well, if Facebook did this, it must have been the right decision, or if Facebook did this, it must have been the wrong decision. Yeah. One interesting thing is that you have at your hands many more tools than governments have. Governments have sort of an on-off switch about speech. They can punish people for speech. They can order you to take it down. But you have more control in terms of how many people see particular kinds of speech. And so that's very sort of wrapped up in the algorithms and the way that you've designed your product. But I wonder how you think about the question of the on-off switch for mm -hmm. speech versus that more textured approach of think people can get at the speech, but should it be pushed? Should it be reaching? Should it be allowed to go viral? 
how, if at all, yeah. would this board eventually look at those kind of questions? Yeah, so let's talk about the V1 of it first, and then, and then, and then over time. Um, you know, I think that this is such a, an ambitious and unusual project in general for a company to, to take on that one of the things that I've tried to be careful about is making sure that the scope is clear in the beginning so that way it doesn't just collapse under its own weight. So my hope, I, I have a lot of hope that this can expand over time and cover more scope, um, can include more folks in the industry, um, can become part of a broader process, but I also just want to be careful about not um, trying to do too much at once such that, um, I mean, I think it's going to be hard even to pull off what we're, what we're trying to hear. Um, but that said, I, I, do, I do think the point that you're, that you're raising um, is an important one, that it's not just about yes, no, is this on the, on the platform or not. It's not, there aren't an infinite set of options. I mean, the, the content generally falls into um, a number of, um, of clear categories. I mean, the, the vast majority is, okay, this is fine, right? People can share it as they want. Anyone, it can spread as, 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 um, as, as people want. There's another category um, which is maybe one step uh, over from that, which is, um, okay, this is, maybe you're saying something that's factually incorrect. Um, we don't believe that uh, you shouldn't be able to say things that are wrong to your friends, but we don't want things that are, um, that are hoaxes to be going viral, right? So there, you know, we don't, we don't block the content from being on our services, um, but we do reduce its distribution so it doesn't go viral. We put up a warning that says, independent fact checkers have said that this is false. That's kind of another discrete bucket. Then you get into category, another category where it's like, okay, this content is bad. Um, it is, it's harmful. Um, it's it's going to cause some imminent damage. So we need to take this content down. And then you get into things that are even more extreme of this content, either, either you're a repeated actor who's spreading um, things that could be dangerous, um, or what you're doing is so harmful by itself that this is not only going to have an impact on, uh, on this piece of content, but on, on your standing as a member of the community and your ability to use the service either for some period of time um, or permanently. And it's, there, there are those categories, and I do think um, the board will be able to not only weigh in on the treatment on a specific piece of content, but like any appeals process overall, um, we'll need to be able to influence the underlying policies that, and, and how they get set um, and, and how they uh, uh, affect um, how we think about which content should be in which of those buckets and how these things should be treated. And I, think, I just think that that's an incredibly important part of how, um, how the system needs to, to work over time. And, and this is going to be a years-long project of evolving it to, to increase the scope to, to get there. And as Mark said, first got to walk. <laughs> Well, but I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one thing that makes it so interesting and exciting is that there's a very different mode of distributing, distributing speech on social media. And that creates, you know, multiple avenues and mechanisms for learning things and also multiple avenues and mechanisms for harm. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, multiple avenues for, for solutions. Yeah. So it does seem like over time, if this board can stand up and do its job the way we want it to and develop public legitimacy, then we should be able to explore all those things that Mark's discussing. Yeah, so I, I know we're a bit short on time, but there are two more topics that I wanted to make sure we covered. Um, so one is about regulation more broadly. I mean, today, most of the conversation has been focused on how we would stand up um, this independent process but it's still largely something that you know we're initiating. We're doing a, a consultative um, process with with a lot of folks to get input on it. Um, but it's it's not a um, it's it, it's not a government imposed regulation. Um, and I think that a model like this probably makes um, the most sense in countries, especially like the United States, that have such a strong um, protection under the First Amendment that. Um, that there's unlikely to be much significant content regulation. Um, but I'm curious how you think about how this plays out across the world and, and where a model like this can intersect with, um, with regulation and where that can be productive or, or what we should um, look out for or where, where um, we, should, we should be encouraging um, more regulation that might be more effective than this in, in certain places or just how you think about that uh, overall. 
Well, I think it's an interesting question because it's not clear that more government regulation here would be useful. On the one hand, governments are more accountable to the general public. But on the other hand, there is a danger that regulation could tilt too much towards suppression of speech and also that it could inhibit competition in among companies because complying with regulations can be expensive. And if governments put really onerous regulations on, then that'll make it harder for other companies to enter. And that, in turn, could worsen whatever problems there are in terms of mm -hmm. people feeling that there's too much concentrated power. So um, it's not clear that government regulation would be better, even though it would be more time for at least some of the, maybe for a lot of other things, regulation would be useful, but on the sort of most expression part of this versus you know, campaign speech and finance disclosure or privacy issues where regulation fits um, more neatly into what, what might be desirable. I do think it's interesting internationally to think about what industry and governments and civil society have done in some other areas. They, in international law, people call it multi-stakeholder initiatives. So, for example, with respect to diamonds being mined in areas where there's armed conflict, there's something mm -hmm. called the Kimberley process that involved governments, it involved companies, it involved non-governmental organizations and human rights groups to try to come up with some standards. And so here, I do think there is the potential in the long run, it's not a quick and dirty solution, but in, a, in the long run to have greater involvement from um, the industry as a whole, from non-governmental organizations, intergovernmental organizations like the UN, um, to have more global standard setting, even in a non-binding way, where you have some kind of international process to set standards that industry participates in, that civil society groups participate in. And maybe they're not binding at the end of the day, but that they represent a kind of deliberative process involving more stakeholders. And so that's something we've seen internationally in a lot of other areas. And it I think it's something that you could see develop here. No, to me, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think when you think about governments regulating, I would like to see governments say, among those countries where they are going to demand some form of regulation, look, we want you to have a system where you state your values and explain what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Facebook could say, well, look, we have that system. Here it is. And then in a sense, this could eventually, again, if it's successful, be a kind of best practices model um, for governments that say, because I think most governments don't actually want to engage in the review of billions of pieces of content every day. They just want to make sure that it's being done responsibly. And that seems to me very sensible. And I think similarly, if other companies want to get involved over time, and it could become an industry-wide phenomenon. That too, I think, fits this goal. I don't think governments should want to, and I would not love the idea of governments going into the details of what content goes up and what content you know, comes down. But I think they could plausibly say, have a system. And that seems like a logical mode of regulation yeah, here that protects that, freedom that, of expression. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, we've been engaged with the, the French government, which is trying to figure out its, its regulatory approach to, um, to the internet and expression and, and, and balancing these different values. And, um, and they've been very engaged in, in this and kind of very sophisticated in thinking through and understanding all of the systems that, that exist out there today um, and where they should be improved, but where they're they're good, and um, and and it seems to me like where they're getting to, um, which feels right, is more on the lens of of requiring that there's systems in place that are adequate, that are continuously improving, where there's the right transparency, so that people can um, and the governments can understand uh, what what the systems are and what the companies are doing to maintain them, and it's quite possible over time if this. Um, if this approach works well, I would hope that um, that one thing that we could potentially consider is having governments um, consider this approach of an independent board as part of the overall system of content governance um, for internet services online. And I think that has also the advantage that you wouldn't then have the balkanization of 170-some different standards if there is a kind of consensus yeah. In internationally that there should be a process and that it's a process regulation versus every country coming up with a different set of rules. That makes it more feasible to have the kind of openness that, that we have. And that's, the by the way, another process. reason for the appeal of a kind of oversight board that's modeled in some way on constitutional courts that we're familiar with, because almost all countries, not all, but almost all, think that's roughly the right way to go about you know, treating these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. 
All right, so the, the last issue that I want to make sure we, we touch on, because we, we've spent all this time today talking about the, um, the independent board and, um, and, and voice, but uh, this isn't the only place where, where we're trying to focus on more independent governance. And you know, just last week, um, you know, we announced that we were joining with 27 other companies um, to create uh, the Libra Association uh, to help stand up a, a new uh, currency and, and, um, and, and financial infrastructure to empower billions of people around the world uh, to be able to participate in, in the financial system and do um, affordable or even free transactions um, that can unlock a whole lot of different use cases if this works. But clearly, um, to build something like that, that's not the type of thing that any one company can, um, can do by themselves or that, um, that other participants in a system like that would want a, a, any one company to, to have control over. So we're very deliberate in, um, in, in making sure that as we, we worked with a lot of other companies to, to start this, um, that you know, Facebook gets one vote in the, the association. Um, we don't get to control it. Um, and we, we want this to be as broad of, a, of, an, of an area as possible. And I'm, and I'm curious... Um, how you think about about the what you think are the important lessons from from the experience of of thinking through these issues around expression on Facebook that we should carry towards other areas, but also you know where are there other areas um, that over time we could potentially create this kind of independent governance to to build trust and um, have more independent processes for handling really socially important parts of um, of, of what's going on on the internet. Well, it is an interesting sort of another public-private question, right, where sort of money is traditionally the province of governments and international financial systems are under the control of states, either through their own currencies or through international bodies. And so I think one challenge with this is um, not only just having a balance of different private entities that might be involved in setting this up, but thinking about um, the public values of, you know, protection against money laundering and terrorist financing and all those kinds of things. And I think those are things you've, you've thought about, but I imagine from the perspective of states, those are really big concerns. And so having something that is um, global in reach, but that's outside the control of any one state, um, it presents an international governance problem in the same way that some of the things we've been talking about with expression do. And that I, I do think it is... Um, a shift in the way international law will work over time when you've got these kind of functions being carried out in the private sector on a global scale. Um, yeah. And, not, yeah. And, and just to add, add one piece to this, um, you know, the points on AML and, and KYC or anti-money laundering, laundering and, and, and know your customer, the, a lot of the financial regulations, one of the things that we hope to push forward um, here in, in our contribution to, to Libra um, is that a lot of the cryptocurrency space today is, is still trying to navigate um, where a lot of those utilities are going to fit on, on how they follow those rules and how they work with governments. And we're trying to take an approach um, where we are very compliant and, and safe on, on that um, and using the tools that we have um, as a, a large established company um, to, to bring some of that to bear on in, in making uh, a, a version of this digital currency where those protections do exist, um, unlike a lot of other areas um, in, in, the, in the crypto space today. I think that's one of the unique things that we can help um, that we can help bring, and also why we're partnering with folks like um, Visa and Mastercard and PayPal and a lot of these um, financial and, and payments companies. Um, who, who have a specific expertise in that, and we want to make sure that that the, the Libra work definitely is is um, is, is pushing on in, in that direction. For me, the big takeaway from the oversight board thinking that's very much relevant, I think, to the Libra project and to others is that companies like Facebook have to do two things at the same time. They have to take responsibility for the things that people correctly feel they do in the world, and at the same time, they have to devolve some power and decision making to transparent, independent, third-party entities. And it's a, delicate, it's a delicate balance to get both of those things right. People want Facebook to be responsible for its content, but they also think, I think based on our consultations, that there are a lot of decisions that Facebook shouldn't be making and therefore should be devolved to an independent decision-making body. Similarly, in the context of a currency like this, like this 
unless Facebook takes a leading role, as you've done, it's unlikely that this will emerge. Uh, it's, it's a bold experiment in that, in that regard. At the same time, you're also creating independent institutions that will be transparent and that will be subject to public discussion and, and analysis in their decision-making that will do a lot of the ultimate, really important decision-making going forward. And that, I think, to me, is the, the path forward, at least at this historical moment. Um, companies do a lot of things, and the public wants them to do those things, and in fact thinks that the companies do those things pretty well in many instances. At the same time, the public sort of gets that when companies do so many things well, there are dangers, and one potential solution to that, maybe the strongest solution, is public scrutiny and the devolving of some power away from you guys. And that, to me, is a consistent theme, um, and I hope it's a theme that we'll see repeated in other contexts, too. That's right. And I think another issue where you see that is privacy, which overlaps with expression sometimes when you're mm -hmm. disclosing private content, then there's an intersection. But there's also a whole realm of privacy that isn't so much about speech, but about what's being done with people's data. And that's another one where I think um, these concerns about the balance between voluntary actions by industry and public regulation um, plays out on, on the global scale and where um, maybe the balance might be different in terms of more government regulation versus voluntary action. But I think you see that same set of trade-offs of people worried about um, these decisions that can have really big impacts on people's lives that, that aren't necessarily being held to uniform standards or, or being applied in the same way in different parts of the world. Um, so I think that's another analogous area. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, of the major issues that, that I see um, that... that it, that were at the center of or that face the internet. I, I do think it's, you know, speech and and um, how to handle harmful content is is one of them, which I think this independent approach will hopefully be one of the tools for, for helping to, to manage that better. Um, there's a whole separate set of things around elections and um, preventing election interference, which may overlap with this in some places around um, what kinds of content you want on the services, but that has... Um, I think that that's an area where more regulation, um, where countries should decide for themselves who they want spending money to advertise in their elections, what they define as acceptable um, advertising. Um, and there's probably more room for regulation there. And there's more room for um, collaboration with governments to, especially on the intelligence side, to find, um, share signals to, to be able to find people who are trying to um, interfere in elections. Then the third issue is privacy, where I do think that that's one um, where we've seen with GDPR um, that there can be uh, regulation that, that I, I think can be uh, effective at, at, at encoding the rights that, um, that, that people care about, but that also um, that give uh, enough space for companies to... Um, to have principles like we're not going to put our data centers in countries um, and, and localize data in ways that are going to um, put people in harm's way, which I, I, that was to me one of the most important parts of GDPR was that it didn't spell out um, the data localization requirement. And I think there's probably more room for additional legislation and rules that, that make it even clearer that that's not going to be the direction that we want um, the internet to go in. Um, so if that's the third issue, then the, then the last one I think is is almost the, it, it really is a tension with privacy, which is around um, data portability and people's ability to move data from one place to another, which um, it doesn't need to be in tension. Um, we should be able to have privacy and portability, but if we, as a society, are mostly focused on, um, are, are talking about issues around um, privacy, then the incentive for all companies is to make sure that all the data is locked down and not um, in, in that you're not making it as easy as possible for people to to bring data out that could potentially be risky and create um, create issues on on the privacy side. So I think that we need to balance that with with good rules on data portability that also require that companies act in in certain ways to um, to always enable people to bring um, to, to bring the data that they uh, should have access to use to other places. As well, and there the, the the hard questions are about okay, well, what's the definition of what's your data, and what are um, what's someone else's data? What should you have access to be able to bring that? Uh, we could spend a whole hour on on, on just that that alone. Um, but yeah, I, I do think some of these will lend themselves to 
um, independent governance and, and in some ways even self-regulation among an industry. Um, some of them will be places where uh, I, I think governments should require that companies have systems in place like we're talking about on, on content. Um, and, and others, I think, will probably lend themselves to more specific rules about how companies need to operate. But, but I do think that this is one of the most important um, sets of questions facing the internet and, and all of us now, because it's not just that there, there's not just one issue here. I think it's um, at least these four different issues, which are all meaningful issues, um, that we need to figure out a way um, that the public can trust that that companies are operating in a way that um, that they're happy with in order for the these um, the internet to reach the potential that everyone wants it to. So. Um, so thank you for, for joining for this. I mean, it's thanks for um, having us. Fun. We're um, yeah. I mean, we're still in the middle of the of the process on this, but um, the public consultation and, and getting um, people's views on on how they think that we should uh, be be moving forward on this, including the almost thirty different trials that we've done around the world. Um, it's it's been a, a very interesting process so far. And if you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to to read uh, the report that we've published. Um, it's long, but it has a lot of detail in there around, uh, around a lot of the different feedback and some of the trade-offs and the principles of how we can design um, this board and process uh, to, to basically make, make the different decisions that, um, to, to implement this. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, over the next six months, putting this into, into place and, and um, hopefully evolving it over time to take on a, a more important role in how uh, we manage content across our services and, and hopefully eventually um, for, for more places on, on the internet. So um, thank you for, for joining for this. You've got a really challenging task, so good luck. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you.